0: In the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the kingdom of the paranoid, the one-eyed man is a spy. This is Paranoid Planet. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I did not have sexual relations with that woman our enemies are innovative and resourceful and so are we they never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people and neither do we i don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay i'm not going to give you a question you are fake news silent green is people
1: Buongiorno, principessa. Welcome to bonus episode 7.3c of Paranoid Planet. I'm your host, Michel-Jacques Gagné, recording this program from a dark and dingy alley running under a bridge overhanging the River Thames in London. The year is 1982, and there's a dead Italian man, named Roberto, hanging just above me. Lucky for me, that's not the same Italian Roberto I was planning on chatting with here today so we'll just leave this guy alone and see if he crops up somewhere in our conversation later on. The episode you're about to hear is the complete interview I did a few weeks ago with historian and podcaster Roberto Mazza, which was excerpted in episode 7.3a. We'll talk about Italian and Middle Eastern conspiracy theories, podcasting, finding a vocation, and of course the Kennedy assassination. So stay with us, if uh, you don't want to finish like the other guy, eh? Basta guardare le spade, Serpico! Italy was in search of a new government today for the 41st time since the end of World War II. Government number 40, headed by Prime Minister Arnaldo Ferlani, collapsed yesterday under the weight of a most unusual scandal. The revelation that nearly 1,000 of Italy's elite, including three cabinet members, were allegedly members of an outlawed, super-secret, super-evil Masonic lodge called P2. Today, Italian President Sandro Pertini said he would call on a political leader tomorrow to form a new government, and all indications were that leader would again be Forlani. And what about the communists, who have been chaffing for a larger role in the government, and what is this thing called P2
0: anyhow? What in short is going on in Italy? Ah, ciao, Michelle. Everything's great, tutto perfetto
1: So you left Italy to come to Chicago. I was in Chicago last summer. Unfortunately, we did not know each other then. It would have been great to meet up. Uh, I did meet some other people, and uh, a former guest, and uh, also uh, uh, an affiliate of Liam Neeson, of all things. And this was two weeks before that shooting. Uh, if you remember, in northern Chicago, there was a shooting last June, or was it in? Uh, I think it was on on the. Um, Uh, on the 4th of July uh, celebration. So did that happen? Unfortunately,
0: it was on July the 4th. In fact, it was only a few miles from where I live as I live in Wilmette, and that happened in Island Park. In fact, I was on my way to run towards Island Park uh, through an amazing trail. It's called Green Bay um, Trail. And all of a sudden, you know, the weather was uh, muggy and rainish. And I start hearing all of these ambulances and police cars going around. And uh, I would say to my surprise, given the area is very quiet and safe, on the way back, I learned about uh, what happened in Island Park. And effectively, we were in a lockdown for a few hours until the perpetrator was eventually arrested.
1: Okay. You know, people often talk about Chicago like it's a violent place, mobs, gangs, uh, shootings now. Uh, Do you feel unsafe? I mean, you come from Italy where they, you know, where they blow up judges. So uh not to uh, maybe not to exaggerate the crime rate over there but uh what's what's it like living in chicago for a european
0: i think there's a lot of uh, misperception about violence in chicago i mean chicago is not really that different from many other places uh in the western world in terms of urban violence it does exist it's certainly located in uh, in the southern part of uh, chicago where there are lots of other issues i mean violence is just an expression of uh social uh problems but i must say that for instance i lived in jerusalem and uh you know the same degree of violence uh is not just perceived but is real on a daily basis so i i, I have issues with those people that are trying to make chicago this unique case in america of uh you know filled with urban violence uh, it's not it's not just chicago and i think it's a uh, an issue with you know throughout the country just look at the number of uh, mass shootings in the u.s uh, in the past uh, few months since the beginning of the year and also just cases of uh, domestic violence or abuse of uh, you know in general so i think there's a lot of misperception nevertheless violence is real and certainly there are a lot of issues uh, particularly in the southern uh, part of chicago but personally i feel pretty safe to be honest i don't feel like i need uh, to own a gun or actually carry a gun in order to defend myself
1: well, that's good to know. That's good to know. It'll be safer next time I go, uh, I go to Chicago to visit you. Or maybe you'll need to pack heat to protect me from my enemies. Uh, sometimes I, I compare Joanne to Guillermo, you know, on the Jimmy Kimmel show. So he's the Guillermo to my J- Jimmy Kimmel. I was trying to find a, uh, some kind of an analogy uh, for you and I. You know, I was thinking Italian, French speaking. So I thought you could be the Roberto Benigni to my Jean-Claude Van Damme. How's that?
0: Uh, it sounds pretty interesting i love roberto benigni he's certainly not just a, a funny comedian but uh one of my most uh, erudite person uh, in italy i mean his knowledge of the uh, divine comedy and of the bible itself uh it's almost incredible i mean he's able to quote from those books and uh, make connections and uh most of his shows now are not just comedy but really a cultural performance Um, So yes, I'd love to be Roberto Benigni indeed.
1: Okay, that's good. An actor with an education. Um, So tell us a little bit about your studies. Uh, You've mentioned Jerusalem, so you have interest in, I think, in Israel and Ireland and in conspiracy theories. So tell us what you studied. Then we'll maybe talk a little bit about your teaching, uh, if we can do all this briefly, so then we can kind of talk about the conspiracy theories part, which is really what we're interested in the most.
0: I guess your listener would be surprised how sometimes people can bring such a mixed bag so you mentioned i'm italian i was born and raised in italy and up until the age of 28 to be honest i really never thought about any academic career whatsoever i just went to college in bologna uh which we obviously are very proud of uh, reminding people that was the first university in the western world the first one was obviously in cairo uh earlier on so from 1088 if i remember very well but very much i was rooted in my own small town and I even thought about running for office to become the mayor of that small town at some point. But then I moved to London. Yes, I made it to the big city when still was part of the European Union and you didn't need a visa. You could just uh, settle in London. and I took a master in uh, government and politics of the Middle East. Don't ask me why. I thought I was going to maybe become a diplomat. So I just wanted some uh, more expertise in an area which I believed uh, was... Um, let me use the word hot uh might not be very appropriate but you know we're talking about the early 2000s so just post 9-11 and so knowing uh things and learning languages related to the middle east was certainly very important given the uh unfolding events around the world and um i was offered to do a phd which was like a big surprise to be honest i never thought to have uh, the, the qualities and certainly i never even thought about that to be my life not certainly to complete a phd so i took an interest in middle eastern history even though i background the degree in international relations and politics and um, yes i wrote a phd thesis on jerusalem in the period of world war one so i learned turkish for the most part a bit of arabic a bit of hebrew um moved to jerusalem did my research and uh, you know, became fascinated with the history of that city, particularly in the, uh, you know, in the period uh, between the late 19th century of the early 20th century. And, uh, I was lucky enough to be, well, better say to become part of academia. Uh, I never really felt an academic in that sense, but I, you know, enjoyed eventually teaching, learning, publishing, uh, not necessarily. I enjoyed the, um, administrative part of, uh, university and you academia. You don't enjoy grading
1: you know. essays? Uh...
0: Well, if they're good essays, if they're good, but those are... <laughs> when they're good, when
1: they're good, it's all good.
0: Exactly, you don't really find many. So anyway, uh, I ever since I, you know, I, I started working on Jerusalem, I obviously traveled throughout the region. I lived in Jerusalem for a while. I lived in in Istanbul. You know, my work again on Jerusalem brought me around the world. I had to learn, uh, well, improve my French. Really, if you want, because I had to read a lot of documents in French. I lived in the U.S. Uh, you know, that's the job of uh, historical research, really. And then eventually in 2008, uh, so the beginning of a financial crisis, I had to find a job uh, because uh, in London, they could no longer afford to keep me. And I was lucky enough to move to the, uh, well, southern west part of Illinois in a small town called Macomb uh western illinois university which afforded to give me a job literally the beginning of the financial crisis so unexpected perhaps unwanted to an extent but i had to accept the job and uh, happily i did and lived in the middle of uh, nowhere in uh, cornfields for about six years and then from there after meeting uh, my wife who was uh, finishing her phd in tel aviv uh, we moved to israel and from there Ireland so you know moving from a place to another and eventually my wife was offered a postdoc here at Northwestern and once again we packed everything and we moved back to the U.S. actually we never thought to move back to the U.S. certainly never again uh in Illinois and here we are sitting in this basement uh with very little light and escaping as I said earlier horde of zombies out there try to reach me
1: well, I've seen your basement now a couple times because you, you interviewed me on, on one of your podcasts before. I'm hoping that there's, there's something more upstairs than just uh, drywall and, and rafters. And uh, is that a pipe? I think I see a pipe over your head. So uh, you're, definitely, you're definitely getting ready for uh, the zombie apocalypse. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the podcast. I know you're involved in two different podcasts. Tell us briefly what you do with these. Uh, this is kind of your chance to promote them and uh, and and see if some of our listeners might, uh, might migrate to uh, what you're doing.
0: So during the pandemic, as many things happened during that period of time, sitting again in this basement, in this very chair, I was thinking about what to do. I mean, I was involved with some research. I was still teaching online but I thought that something was missing in my life. So I decided to spend some time uh, designing and then start working on a podcast, which I call Jerusalem Unplugged. Jerusalem obviously being the object of my work and unplugged because I thought that it was about time to uh, get away from academia and try to talk about Jerusalem using a different language. Despite the fact that I've been interviewing uh, mostly scholars, but also people that live in Jerusalem, work in Jerusalem, or have different interests in the city. I even interviewed some clergy. The idea was to use a different language, not just uh, the one that we use for articles, chapters, and books, but one that is uh, very familiar, that would uh, give the listeners the possibility to acquaint or to know more about uh, the city's history, uh, sociology, politics, anthropology, archaeology, and anyology that you can And want to add, in fact, we also talked about cuisine, food, uh, uh, music in a number of episodes. So Jerusalem Unplugged was born as a way to talk about Jerusalem in different ways, uh, but at the same time try to give the listeners high quality and good standards. Now, when we talk about Jerusalem, we also have to deal with a question of politics. And the fact that obviously we talk about Israel, we talk about Palestine, we talk about a conflict people around me know my politics, know my views, so I try to uh, follow that, but I also wanted to give voice to people that might have different views than mine, and I did so in a number of episodes, attracting some uh, criticism, sometimes uh, getting some nasty messages, which I understood, to be honest, but at the same time, I really wanted to understand the other side. In this case, for the most part, uh, was that promote or uh, support a certain form of Zionism, um, which also include the occupation of the West Bank or, uh, you know, sort of a deprivation of uh, Palestinian rights. It was very hard for me, too, because I had to deal with uh, ideas that were very different from mine, but I thought it was a very important exercise in democracy, but also in the ability of listening to the others. Um, and to some of his guests, I told, you know, look at my effort. Perhaps you can make the same effort to listen to the other side. And I thought it was like one of the best uh, um, learning process throughout uh, the nearly 100 episodes I recorded of Jerusalem Unplugged. So I'm going to reach the 100 episodes soon, and then I need to uh, think about it, what to do next.
1: Yeah, I really respect that because I think this is one thing that the media... Doesn't do enough of these days, and I think a lot of podcasts are trying to fill that void. And that is to have public discourse where people are free to disagree, but in a way that kind of respects one another. Right? We don't we don't need to tear each other the, tear each other the th- to shreds, nor do we need to apologize necessarily for our beliefs. But we do have to be willing to change our minds. We do not have need to listen to other people, and sometimes we need to bite our lip. And not be too quick to give a response. And I th- I think that's a great thing about podcasts, right? Somebody can listen to something an hour long or longer, two hours long, and it has time to breathe. Whereas a, a six-minute clip or a two-minute clip on CNN or Fox doesn't give the opportunity for that. So thank you for for – I mean, that's probably a harder – uh, a harder field than conspiracy theories to try to bring people together, right? Once we agree on the on the uh, Israel question, uh, I think maybe the, a messiah will come back at that point, right?
0: <laughs> Ooh, the second coming, uh, that's a very interesting topic. I'll be honest with you, actually, this is one of those topics I never touched upon. I mean, I discussed religion with a number of people, uh, but I found out that at probably the most difficult uh, aspect, I mean, it was easier to talk about politics, and to talk about uh, violation of human rights and uh, you know economic uh, segregation, even to talk about apartheid in that context. But when I try to talk about religion, I realize that it's a very touchy, touchy uh, subject for many. And you know, as much as I discussed some religious topics with some individuals, um, I still have to figure out how to do it uh, properly in, in a way that is not gonna upset some of the listeners but at the same time is going to offer some good information so maybe that will be uh jerusalem unplugged 2.0 after episode 100 i still have to figure it out but, but you can call not? it
1: the new jerusalem you know <laughs> and then you can talk to theologians about what what that means to them right
0: oh, interestingly enough i found out there are a number of uh, podcasts dedicated to jerusalem mostly run by evangelicals and uh, They do discuss a lot questions about the second coming, obviously, uh, I would say a read of the gospel that does certainly not conform with my own knowledge and understanding, but uh, maybe, maybe, you know, future will will tell.
1: Sometimes the deeper you get into the eschatology, you start seeing the conspiracy theories crop up, which is maybe a good segue to ask you... um, how did you get interested in conspiracy theories? I mean, I was on your other podcast. Maybe we should say a few things about that, which is the New Books Network, in which as a historian, you interview other historians on various subjects. And feel free to, to mention something about that because I kind of cut in. But then tell us also how you got interested in creating a conspiracy theory channel on the New Books Network.
0: So the New Books Network is the largest uh, academic network uh, offering a podcast podcast. Um, discussing all new publications. So essentially, Marshall Poe, who is the creator and editor, opened a channel and start interviewing scholars who recently published a book. And then that uh, spiraled into all disciplines and fields. In fact, I think there are thousands of episodes every month published covering all disciplines, from medicine to uh, uh, economics, uh, history, anthropology, et etc., et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that uh, scholars interview other scholars about their books. Uh, Obviously, you have different quality interviews. Some are just uh, dry interviews about what's the content of the book. Others are more conversation about their books. But the point is to offer listeners the possibility to familiarize with, uh, you know, the fast-paced world of publications and get to see what's out there. I started uh, mostly interviewing uh, scholars that publish material on um, the Middle East, which is my subject. But because I developed in the past few years a very strong interest about uh, conspiracy theories, and I get there and explaining how I moved into that area, then in recent times I was able to, uh, well, not really open a channel yet. Hopefully it will be a full channel at the moment as a special series dedicated to publications discussing conspiracy theory, which without... Uh, into specific, uh, but perhaps we should actually give a name. The only publisher now specializing on that is Routledge. That has a a series dedicated to uh, conspiracy theories. So I I think actually we should say kudos to Routledge to pick up on that idea and publish a number of volumes dedicated specifically on conspiracy theories.
1: Yes, thank you for saying that because that includes me uh, in that list. So if it wasn't for them, I think I'd still be shopping around for a publisher. I've had a lot of publishers saying, hey, this looks like a great project, but it doesn't fit on our lists right now. And I think I got to Routledge kind of at the time when they were building the series. I talked to Peter Knight, who's the director of the series with uh, Mikael Buter. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great to see their work. And now you can kind of do an offshoot of something like that by looking at how different academics are are addressing the issue.
0: But, but I think that is exactly the, the, the issue in a sense that Even when I talked to the editor of the New Books Network with the idea of opening a channel, he was very skeptical. He's now more open. So I hope one day we will be a full channel dedicated to it. But the point is that there's a lot of people, they don't see, you know, the study of conspiracy theory as a a field on its own. Uh, They see it as like maybe an interdisciplinary approach where you have people from different uh, fields, you know, contributing to this discussion what I think it's happening is that they don't see that actually conspiracy theories are important that they have to be studied as a subject and not just as a, a random uh, you know part of uh, a random object part of different disciplines So maybe those who are studying psychology or medicine if you think about the medicalization of conspiracy thinking or history or politics but actually they can be brought together, and I think that it's a much more useful approach because that will give us a, you know, a full understanding of what conspiracy theories are, how they work, how they spread, and obviously the consequences of conspiracy theories uh, in society and upon us because we see that, uh, unfortunately, now every day.
1: Yeah. So how, now at Northwestern, I, uh, I spoke to some of your students there over Zoom a few weeks ago. Uh, how do you organize a class on conspiracy theories at, uh, at the university level?
0: So let me first start uh, telling your listeners that I developed this idea about conspiracy thinking a long time ago, to be honest. Mostly working on what you said earlier, eschatology, eschatological thinking. Because when I started working on Jerusalem, obviously, I had to deal with a fact that already from the early 20th century, when the British took over in 1917, some of the British officials uh, were, nowadays we would call them evangelicals, but back then were called non denominationals so they belonged to non-denominational churches in Britain, and they believed in the second coming of Jesus, which should have followed a specific doctrine which also included the idea of bringing back the Jews to the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, and then from then uh, triggering the second coming, which would have ended and will still would have, will end according to them with the rupture of the skies. And so half of the Jews will be uh, essentially killed. The other half of the Jews will be converted. And obviously this makes the entire doctrine extremely anti-Semitic, but you know, that was not the issue and still not the issue today. And most of it is based on a misinterpretation of certain passages in the Bible and in the gospel and the creation of a new doctrine, but also based on some conspiracy thinking, particularly about the Jews. Close the chapters. uh, A few years later, when I was living in Istanbul and I was studying Turkish, I came across a number of people who began to talk about the deep state, which was very curious uh, I didn't know what they were really referring to. But then I understood that this was referred to, uh, you know, back then Prime Minister Erdogan, which had been recently elected. And he was trying to reform the bureaucracy of the Turkey state, suggesting that there were these deep state bureaucrats that essentially were directing state policies against the decisions of the policymakers. So the prime minister. Eventually that deep state translated into English and it became a, I would say some sort of a mantra in many Western countries, obviously in the US uh, under the Trump presidency was a huge question. There is a deep state, there are all of these bureaucrats, local politicians, administrators, who are essentially going against the will of the people. And that's where I took a deeper interest in conspiracy thinking. And I thought about creating a course that would deal with a global history of conspiracy thinking, even though I very much started with the idea of conspiracy theories in the Middle East, the question of a deep state and also the fact that in the Middle East, conspiracy thinking is uh, very important because a number of conspiracies actually turned out to be true. One of the most important is about uh, the history of Iran when uh, in the 1950s, uh, Mossadegh was elected prime minister of Iran and eventually was ousted and many in the region always claimed that it was a coup staged by the CIA and the British services and obviously the you know by then the Palevi dynasty the monarch uh, they always said no it's not true Uh, it's the will of the people but now we know mostly thanks to uh, WikiLeaks that actually there was a conspiracy and Mossadegh was pushed out by the CIA which we also know happen in different parts of the world, particularly in Central and Latin America. Yeah, we've talked
1: about the Chile example a lot here. Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. And so, conspiracy thinking in the Middle East is uh, very real, perhaps in a different way from the Western world, because people believe that some are actually true, and they have, you know, evidence of that. And you know, this is a very good example. Of, Uh, related to Iran, but also related to other, uh, you know, sort of political events that unfolded in the Middle East in the past few decades. So people, are, I would say, are more skeptical than really true believers, but they always believe there's something there, that the politicians are always given the truth. Besides, when you look around the Middle East, most of these countries are ruled by dictators, so they obviously use, uh, you know, conspiracies in order to keep uh, their power and people have become skeptical or sometimes they don't really trust what they've been told and they believe in conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are used also by those in power so conspiracy theories are everywhere
1: yeah yeah so um today our our, of course our focus is not so much on on middle eastern conspiracy theories though it would be great to have you back on when we if ever we do go that way or talk about the protocols of zion or something like that but uh we're going to be talking about oliver stone And his use of uh, the story of Jim Garrison, the first man to, or the only man, to open a court case on the Kennedy assassination um, uh, in order to blame Clay Shaw, not Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Did you ever see the JFK film by Oliver Stone?
0: I did, and I did many times. Because in 1991, then the movie came out, I was still living in Italy, and therefore I watched the movie in Italian. You know, in Italy, we dub movies. Uh, dubbing is provided by professional actors that sometimes even improve the performances of uh, uh, actors.
1: Yeah, we have that uh, in Quebec as well. I always loved watching the Flintstones in French. I always thought it was more rich than uh, than the American version. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. You know, there are certain movies in Italy that when I tell people here in America, they're like, but it was a crappy movie. Well, no, not really. But I understood in time that actually the dubbing provided more qualities to the movie itself. So, I remember watching it in Italian a couple of times, and then watching it again in English, actually only a couple of years ago, when I started teaching this class at Northwestern on conspiracy theories. The one thing that I remember very well was the impact that the movie had on my mother. Because my mother, watching the movie, then began to ask questions about, oh, wow. So maybe there was a conspiracy you know, my mom was a young woman in the 1960s and like many, uh, people around Europe, they were looking at, uh, the Kennedy family, this like, uh, sort of, uh, you know, young family upcoming, uh, you know, couple, and, and certainly with the hope that they would bring change to the world. And, uh, I remember she was, uh, asking a lot of questions and we talked about it a lot, you know, back then I was, uh, in high school and, you know, we had conversations and I must say that to an extent, I too began to believe that the possibility that there was a cover up and there was a conspiracy and uh, someone else, if not uh, Harvey Lee Oswald killed JFK, or at least that there were people behind his hand. So certainly watching the movie, 1991 wrote uh, a lot of questions. Later on, I began to question those questions and to see the movie through a different kind of lenses and to maybe rethink uh, you know, the way I watched the movie the first time, and to also think about the context, 1991, the end of the Cold War, um, the fact that uh, we two, even in Italy, we couldn't really buy the idea that a young leader could have simply just been killed by someone who had his own motives to do so, but there must have been something bigger behind it. And so that movie became a a watershed. And I must say, many, you know, my friends, you know, ever since began to question uh, sort of the veracity of the story, but also to question nature of the United States, yes, as a democratic country, as a beacon of freedom, but also as a country that basically sponsors... uh, Public cover up in Italy, uh, but I guess is everywhere in Europe. You know, the movie became this idea of uh, offering a different view of the United States. You know, the United States throughout Europe, particularly in the post World War period, has always seen like the beacon of democracy and freedom. But with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and particularly this movie, people began to question whether the US actually were also a different kind of power and using public cover up to cover trash and uh and i think if you look at the generation my generation those that were born in the 1970s were like teenagers or early 20s when the movie came out we start questioning the uh, sort of america the us and uh, you know you can look at the nowadays you know those generations now are in the 50s and many of them are you know maybe in politics maybe uh uh, you know, involved in some way with a public discourse and you you can perceive that. How the movie changed our perception of America, I think is a, is a very important topic that should be studied because here you have obviously a very important uh, director, Oliver Stone, with, you know, offering a movie talking about JFK that was a hero revered throughout Europe, certainly in Italy. And all of a sudden there are questions about his death and how his death was treated. And so, That movie opened a huge Pandora's box, uh, which I don't think has been yet fully understood, certainly in the context of Western Europe, and particularly of Italy, which is is my own country.
1: Yeah, and I guess Italy also has its own history of political violence, right? So uh, it may be that people in your culture were more susceptible than, say, a Canadian person uh, to think that this was within the realm of the possible.
0: Absolutely. In the 1970s, we had in 70s, 80s, and 90s, we not only, uh, you know, had to deal with the mafia, but we also had to deal with uh, political unrest. We had obviously the Red Brigades, or you know, sort of we call them the Black uh, terrorists, uh, basically fascist and communist who blew up a number of objectives, uh, banks, trains, or killed individuals. Remember in 1978 the Red Brigades kidnapped former Prime Minister Aldo Moro and eventually executed him you know talking about conspiracy theories there was a story at some point that a group of young politicians met and uh, you know they use um seance uh you know this kind of like uh, how you call it I, I forgot the name um, you know, to go around the table with a with a glass, yeah, yeah. the it's, spirit told them yeah yes exactly and and the spirit told them where the Moro was actually kept. then they informed the police they went to this town, but eventually it was not the town, in fact, the name was referring to the street where he was kept in Rome now. So is we that, don't know about really that happened. angels
1: or demons helping the police?
0: <laughs> exactly. So you know there are all of these stories, and so in, in Italy, was being very skeptical of official stories uh, that were sort of uh, you know produced by the government. So I'm not surprised that when the movie came out, then many Italians began to be more suspicious of America and of sort of the American politics. Look. If we are doing it in Italy, now we have Oliver Stone, this great director talking about JFK and the cover-up. So that must be true. And if not really true, but it must be probably true to a point. And so I would say that a lot of uh, um, skepticism towards America was born certainly in Italy, but I would say probably throughout Western Europe, also as a result of the movie by Oliver Stone in
1: 1991. Oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, What is there a particular part of the film or of the theory that got you to believe it more at the beginning?
0: You know, I I thought about it. Um, I think there are some images that are very interesting. Um, And I think it's about youth. You have, uh, first of all, a very young... uh, uh, Kevin Costner is an actor. Um, You have, uh, obviously, a young... uh, JFK that is being killed. So, I I was, I guess my attention was caught by this idea of youth. So, the image of youth. And that made me realize that there's something about youth that is connected to conspiracy thinking. Um, You know, think about it. If you start comparing what happened to JFK and also the investigation, and you link it to what happened just a few years later with uh, Lady Diana then you realize that we can't really accept the fact that young leaders may just be killed, whether in an accident or by someone, but there must be a more complex explanation. Lady Diana obviously died in, uh, in Paris in 1997. As we all know the story, you know, just uh, the driver was drunk and then eventually had a crash uh, in the famous uh, tunnel of Alma. Obviously, they were followed by by journalists, but when you look at the conspiracy thinking, is that obviously, that was staged, and the monarchy, certainly Queen Elizabeth, was behind that. Uh, but to me, what was interesting is that again, there, there is the death of this young woman, which is very similar to the you know the death of a young president, jFK. And so when I watched the movie and I was re-watching yesterday a few bits and pieces. I realized that there is this kind of theme of youth. I mean, even in the movie, right, you have a, a lot of young people that are involved, really. They want to know more about what happens. They can't simply accept the fact that Harvey Lee Oswald was behind, uh, the hand behind the gun that killed JFK, but they needed a, a bigger explanation, bigger in the sense that there must have been a conspiracy, there must be the mafia, there must have been... Uh, uh, the military uh, complex be, be behind it, there must have been someone that was really seeking the death of this uh, you know, president. Mm-hmm.
1: Is this one of your favorite conspiracy theories, or do you have another one that you're, you, you, you prefer to talk about in class or to research?
0: No, it's not my favorite, even though I must say that it's very attractive, because every time I took this class and I asked uh, uh, my students, what is your favorite conspiracy theory? And the largest majority of them still, and we're talking about kids in their 20s, so they're born in the 21st century, but still refers to JFK. And I must admit that last year, we were having a class, and all of a sudden, one of my students, actually from Dallas, told me, listen, uh, something's happening in Dallas. He got a few text messages from some friends. And uh, first of all, I told him, why are you looking at your phone? But then I said, actually, what's going on? And we turned on a TV and we were watching, uh, let's see, like probably amazed, the bizarre images coming from Dallas of all of these people, hundreds of people awaiting the return of JFK.
1: The it was fascinating. The Messiah yes. returns to Dallas. Yeah.
0: We, we we were speechless because, again, you have this idea that conspiracy theories are the story shared by a lot of people, but they are shared whether you know, behind the screen or through, uh, through a phone. But actually, you had real people awaiting. They were literally in downtown Dallas awaiting the return of JFK. And what else you can say, really? So those images were very powerful. There's, there's definitely a religious,
1: there's a religious element, right? And even in, oh, in, a, in my book, I say that conspiracy theories turn JFK into a Jesus 2.0.
0: I agree. I agree. I mean, in a sense, I I found it interesting, because when you look at JFK, yes, he was Catholic, uh, certainly Christian. I wouldn't see him as a particularly pious figure. You know, we can start with uh, all of his affairs, but also some shady business, probably. And, and yet he turned into a Jesus. Uh, I mean, look at nowadays with Trump. The moment he was indicted, a lot of people began... To uh, look at him as like, well, even Jesus was arrested, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: It's like there's a big difference there, but I don't see Trump
1: wearing a crown of thorns in a, a New York City courtroom. But you know, you never know. You never
0: know. Me neither. But yeah. you know, if if this is how people want to see him, then that's it. I mean, you can really compare anything you want.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but going back to the point of my favorite conspiracy theory. I have to go back the Middle Ages and, you know, the old story of um, the blood libel. The blood libel is what then eventually, I would say, originated modern anti-Semitism. And, you know, certainly as a a history of centuries, I always tell my students that you have to think about that the last blood libel was in the 1920s. At least the last recorded one in the Western world was in the late 1920s in Messina which was uh, blaming new york so.
1: blaming jews for kidnapping children Yeah,
0: exactly so the whole idea of a blood libel it's the idea that jews around easter uh, or jewish passover would uh, kidnap and kill children and essentially use the blood uh, as a sacrifice that's i mean originated in europe we certainly have a story coming out from uh, from england in the 13th century some historians argue that as much as we don't really have evidence of previous cases, but the story was probably already there, so probably predates that period of time. But it became very powerful uh, to the point that, again, even in the 21st century, we still have people referring to the blood libel, to the possibility that Jews are killing children in order to sacrifice them for the Passover and use the blood for uh, specific rituals. So it's it's a long lasting conspiracy theory, which unfortunately produced terrible effects. I mean, parts of the Holocaust uh, and the the doctrine spread by Hitler against the Jews also picked up uh, elements of the stories of the blood libel. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the satanic panic in the 80s and the pizza gate in the 2010s. Right. So uh, it's whenever children are brought into the theory uh, I think people suspend disbelief more and they tend to uh, think that there must be something evil going on because who would possibly want to harm children? Even if we can't find the, the bodies or identities of these allegedly uh, kidnapped or, or killed children, it's such a powerful image that it, it does feed uh, a lot of moral panics.
0: The whole the point uh, related to uh, you know the idea of accusing the Democrats of being pedophile being And of course, as you mentioned, Pizzagate, it really is a model in that sense. You know, even in thinking about a classroom, we talk about models of conspiracy. And so when we looked at uh, the Pizzagate, we obviously used the model of a blood libel in order to explain how, you know, you basically have the same kind of narrative style. It just only translated into uh, uh, the Democrats instead of the Jews, but the argument is the same. So the Democrats are now the new Jews in that sense so what we have is a change from the blood libel and the blood libel 2.0 is now you know the pizzagate
1: okay i'm gonna bring this to a close because uh we're, we're, i would like to keep talking but obviously there's a limit to how much i can i can publish but i do want to play a game with you i have i have a quiz uh we know that juan has struggled a little bit in the last couple of quizzes i gave him uh, and I like to do this with a lot of my guests. So I prepared a game. It's called Do You Know Your Dead Paisans? So there are 10 questions about conspiracy theories related to Italy. So are, are you game? Are you willing?
0: Go for it. Okay. I hope to represent my country, even though...
1: Well, I think you already have a free point because you already answered one of these without uh, without knowing. Ooh. So uh, question one... years
0: abroad. Good to know.
1: <laughs> question one. Who were the two men who organized the assassination of Julius Caesar?
0: oh my goodness uh jeez i don't remember no i I thought that would be the easiest one um
1: because i guess you didn't study uh classical history as much right well
0: i did i just don't remember i mean obviously we all remember the idols of march you know the fact that they they, they, went to the senate early morning and eventually he was uh stabbed in the back uh
1: Remember. i think he was stabbed all over yeah all so- over
0: yes absolutely eventually all over yes
1: okay so we have marcus junius brutus and gaius cassius longinus Long- longinus yes so brutus and cassius
0: brutus and cassius brutus yes and- exactly yes yes yes
1: uh, maybe it's because we read Shakespeare in high school that uh, we're reminded of these guys.
0: No, but I should have known. Yes. I must admit, That's I should okay. have known.
1: You get, you get, you get more chance. What's the pass grade at Northwestern? 60%, 50%? 60%, Sixty percent? Fifty percent? Sixty percent. Yes. Okay. So you need, you need six answers. Number two. What deadly event did Emperor Nero blame on the
0: Christians? Well, the fire of Rome. Right. Even though, and I love to teach about that. Actually you know that fire was not caused by nero um what is interesting is eventually that some of the christians and and i think this is very very fascinating adopted the idea that nero didn't die even though we know committed suicide and there are stories that christians began to spread that nero would come back one day and that essentially gave rise to the question to the uh, whole idea of the antichrist oh interesting so Um, you know, another conspiracy theory out of a conspiracy theory.
1: So Nero also faked his own death, yes, exactly. (laughs) Like Elvis and Tupac, of course,
0: they're all together (laughs) somewhere on the moon or uh, on the moon. Uh,
1: Number three, which revolutionary secret society tried to unify Italy through a revolution in 1820 and again in
0: 1831? I guess that's the Giovane Italia of Young Italy.
1: Uh, yes, uh, but their previous name was what?
0: Oh my goodness! Think of something uh, that
1: you can burn uh, in order to uh, to heat up a house uh, a long time ago. Oh
0: yes, the carbonari. The
1: carbonari. The uh, yeah,
0: which comes from you know obviously coal. Does that mean coal uh, miner? Or well, does that mean a coal yes, miner? yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Uh so, which is which is very interesting. You know, again, some say that we're connected with uh, Freemasons. Uh, which is possible. I mean, absolutely. These were secret societies. And uh, it's quite interesting because then the Young Italia, the joven Italia, became a model for a number of other organizations. Again, connected to my own work uh, on the Middle East, the Young Turks are a mirror of that organization. The Young Turks are those that organized a revolution that removed the uh, uh, Ottoman Sultan from power.
1: I thought they called themselves the Carbonari, the, 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 the coal miners, because they didn't blackface. No. you know how the coal miners always have all this black on their face no
0: yeah i I don't know i honestly don't know you know i'm just kidding
1: i'm just kidding Uh, yeah i Uh, don't know uh, we have a prime minister here who was caught doing blackface in his youth i know uh, we like unfortunately yes we like to make fun of that number four we're getting closer to the modern day here which italian american mobster was the first to break the rule of silence or omerta and confess to the existence of the Cosa Nostra, better known as the Sicilian Mafia, in front of the U.S. Senate in
0: 1963? Ooh. Uh, that I don't remember. Was uh, someone called Valachi? Valachi? Could be?
1: Yes. Yes. Joseph Valachi. Valachi. Yeah, or Valachi I, C-
0: I, I remember about it because uh, just recently I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about him. And I was surprised because uh, we didn't know much about it in Italy. Um, Other than, you know, I guess in Italy, who became very famous was John Gotti later on. Uh, Remember the 1960s, we didn't really have TV in Italy. So everything was based on newspapers. And and I think that's the reason why uh, he was never so famous, even though eventually it was the first one, as you said, to admit that obviously there is such a thing as Cosa Nostra um, in front of Congress, uh, but very, very fascinating character. Yes, and I can't remember, but I think I watched once a video on YouTube about him. I, I think there are still videos uh, of his uh, testimony in front of the Congress, which speaks volume about the fact that, I mean, obviously in America, you had already videos where in Italy we didn't back in the 1960s.
1: Question uh, five. Actually, you've already answered this one. Which Italian prime minister was kidnapped and murdered by communist terrorists in 1978?
0: That was Aldo Moro. And if I can, to attach a short story here briefly. So in 1978, I was four years old. I, like every four years old, have, you know, very few memories. But I have one that is traumatic. And it's connected to the day the body of Aldo Moro was found uh, because I was obsolete in uh, preschool. And uh, I remember that at some point uh, I was taken away by the nun running the preschool. And my mom came to pick me up when all of the other kids were already home. Obviously, I didn't understand that. I, I was only afraid because I, I remember that she took me from, from the school to where the nuns were living. And, you know, I didn't know why. And everything was dark and I was afraid. I wanted my mom, essentially. Now, years later, uh, because this memory came back and I asked, mom do you remember when you picked me up from school and she was very surprised that i would remember that and then i was told yes you know that day they found the body of a you know Aldo Moro, and all of a sudden everything shut down because there were rumors of a possible coup which nowadays we know and again conspiracy thinking uh which actually turned out to be true there was an organization called gladio uh which was composed of mostly right-wing uh, political leaders with the support of the US that were, again, kind of uh, ready to uh, fight against a possible communist takeover. So there was a real chance of a civil war over a coup when uh, the body of Aldo Moro was uh, discovered. Eventually the politicians, both on the left and the right, were able to kind of uh, calm down the situation but the reaction of the people was to go home and just uh, live in a lockdown for a few days. And so that traumatic memory eventually turned out to be connected to a major event in Italian history.
1: I guess if you're if you're on lockdown, there's more, uh, you need to pass the time somehow. So some people ended up playing Ouija board or doing seances, and that's how they found out that uh, where Aldo Mori was found. Found dead, but found, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay, next question. Which Pope was allegedly poisoned when he discovered a secret money-laundering plot involving organized crime at the Ooh, Vatican That was Bank? John Paul I. John Paul I, exactly. 1979. You, you know, you the,
0: uh, the worker Pope, he was coming from uh, the working class and a fascinating story. He suffered from heart, uh, various heart conditions. Um, so I guess... The right answer would be he died because of a heart attack, but some speculated that uh, he was poisoned uh, because he was drinking coffee. He was not supposed to, but he did. And uh, then he died. Uh, Was he a communist? Was he a communist sympathizer? Certainly he was from the working class and he had a very good understanding of the working class conditions in Italy and possibly in Europe. Um, And so the speculation is that some people didn't like that approach. Which you know you might see very close to Pope Francis nowadays, and uh, so some reactionaries organized his uh departure shall we call it that that way
1: yeah <laughs> it's he's like the David Ferry character of the Vatican where uh he there David Ferry's one of the guys that um Jim Garrison had arrested uh he died of an aneurysm. But the film suggests he was either poisoned, committed suicide, or drowned in his own you toilet. You've never seen aneurysm, right? On your so reason, people right? are never happy. Uh, yeah. Heart attacks are boring. Exactly. People want something more than heart attacks. Yeah. yeah. When I die of a heart attack, everybody, everybody's going to say my wife poisoned me. They might be right. They might be right. We'll see. Uh, number seven, which Italian banker who was associated to the collapse of Banco Ambrosiano uh, is one of uh, sorry, in one of Italy's largest financial scandals, was found dead hanging under Blackfriars Bridge in London in 1982.
0: I was eight years old when uh, Mr. Calvi was found, uh, on, you know, hanging on uh, Roberto Calvi, hanging um, yes. on this bridge in London. And, exactly, in and it was shocking. Even, you have to remember this. By 1982, there were only two TV channels in Italy. And so everything we're talking about was this. So even as an eight-year-old boy, there was no other way but just to listen to this and try to get some uh, explanation. I mean, you know, eventually, I always tell people in America that kids in, in Italy still nowadays grow up in an adult world and are treated as adult even when, you know, you're fairly young. And I remember, you know, the story of this guy found in London hanging. And obviously all of the stories about uh, the money, the uh, money that was basically probably laundered through his bank coming from the Vatican, which is also connected to a very interesting story, still you know, a very popular story uh, nowadays, which is the kidnapping and then the killing of a young girl uh, that was living in Vatican territory. In fact, she had uh, 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 Vatican citizenship, Emanuela Orlandi, still an open case nowadays for which even Pope Francis kind of refused to answer. And John Paul II was grilled many times by journalists, and he he basically always said, well, she's in heaven, she's with the angels. That was a very famous answer that he gave to journalists and to the family itself.
1: So how was she connected to Roberto Calvin?
0: Well, apparently, uh, the connection was that she was used as a pawn, uh, so she was kidnapped. As a Vatican citizen, you know she was the daughter of uh, someone working in the Vatican, so she was given Vatican citizenship, and basically she was used as a pawn and so the latest that we know is that she was probably kidnapped and taken to a convent in London. but you know other than that, really we don't know much about what happened to her other than most likely she died
1: so do you think Calvi committed suicide or was <laughs> it definitely a murder?
0: Sorry, I have to laugh here ah. Uh, you know, I would love to believe that he committed suicide, but it's very hard to believe he did. Because there are a lot of investigations and and essentially all of the investigators said there's no way he did it. I mean, there's no way he managed to reach that bridge and commit suicide.
1: There, there's a great movie called uh, Mystery Man, which is like spoof on a superhero genre. And one of the characters said her father uh was al- allegedly committed suicide i'm using air quotes here by falling down an elevator shaft onto some bullets so uh, clearly you know there are suicides that are, that are easily to rule out as suicides
0: and there was an investigation in, in fact you know and if i remember well it was actually not long time ago probably early two thousand. you know a number of people were acquitted uh, of uh, murdering Calvi, but there was an investigation because it became clear, also because of investigation of uh, Scotland Yard, that essentially would have been impossible for him to reach the bridge and commit suicide to hang.
1: My next, my next question is 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 connected uh, because a lot of people connect the um, uh, the Calvi murder suicide whatever it was to this organization. So which illegal secret society? Was Italian billionaire and former prime minister Silvio Berlusconi a member of?
0: Let, let me see that uh, P2 in Italian or Propaganda 2, which was a Masonic lodge called P2. And I can tell you, I grew up with this uh, P2 constantly repeated every day in the news, essentially. Um, oh, really? You know, th- and that's the reason why for many times, whenever you talk about Masonic lodges, you know, everything goes back to this idea that there are con conspirators behind the italian government and you know when i tell people that in america you have masonic lodges everywhere in fact there's one five minutes walk from where i live uh, you know people just uh jump because it's like what do you mean there's a masonic lodge well freemasonry in america is very different from the idea of freemasonry in italy which was always at least in the the last century it was interpreted as a secret society with the purpose to Direct secretly the government behind you know secret doors mm.
1: is uh is your dad a freemason no or you're not allowed, allowed to saying, say really.
0: really <laughs> uh, but propaganda do I the real power? I mean we know now there has been a number of trials that were certainly people um, that belong to the p p2 who eventually occupy position of powers and again, they were connected to the other. Uh, conspiracy, which turned out to be true, supported by the U.S. and certainly by you know other Western governments of Gladio, uh, which was the secret organization ready to take over in case of a communist takeover of the country. A couple of times, the Communist Party gained more than 30% of a vote in Italy. And so we now know through you know documents that have been released that actually Gladio was activated and members of Gladio were also members of the P2. So Certainly, a lot of work for historians, but also a lot of work for those that are interested in conspiracy theories, because yeah, you really have this kind of gray area between conspiratorial thinking but also reality
1: uh, so, <laughs> all all very interesting you know it's interesting you you heard about all this as growing up to me, I never heard of any of these things until I was in my twenties, and while I was in my j f k kind of paranoid. Uh, state, I started reading books on the Freemasons, and then I started connecting these things together. I remember selling this, sending a long email to uh, a man who's actually been on our show, Leno Sanik, who still believes the CIA killed Kennedy, and I was trying to convince him at the time, but it was the Freemasons. The Freemasons control the CIA. The CIA killed Kennedy. Uh, now, I, I, I'm glad to say that I got out of the rabbit hole, but I think once you start connecting these different conspiracy theories together... It creates an entire different worldview and it's hard to get out, right? Because suddenly everything seems to be a link to another uh another scandal. It is. And,
0: and I and I must say that in Italy in general, conspiracy thinking is very popular, perhaps not to the same degree as in the US, or at least those that have fallen into the rabbit hole of conspiracy thinking. But there is a general understanding that there is something real about conspiracy theories or as we say in Italian, complotti, plots, because some of them turned out to be true, very much like the Middle East.
1: Okay, I got two more questions for you. Number nine, which Italian novelist wrote the satirical conspiracy novel Foucault's Pendulum?
0: Oh, Umberto Eco.
1: Umberto Eco, that's good. I think that was, if you like your conspiracy theories, that's definitely a go-to novel.
0: He he also wrote the other book, I think it's called The um, Cimitero di Praga, The Prague Cemetery. Which is... That one I to, don't know. Uh, yeah, I, obviously, Umberto Eco is very popular because he also wrote the famous book In the Name of the Rose, uh, which became a very popular movie uh, with Sean Connery. It's like a medieval yeah. murder mystery. But yeah. he was uh, a very important intellectual working on Homsulib, you know, not just philosophy. And I think his idea of making fun and lampooning uh, conspiracy thinking actually backfired Because a lot of people began to believe that there were real conspiracy theories and and conspirators behind the Italian politics or even at a bigger level. So I found it always very, very fascinating.
1: Yeah, I found the novel, which I read in French, uh, was very hard to follow because he actually did so much research on conspiracy theories and his character connecting all these things that eventually you get lost on all of these things. But what was the genius of the novel is that the alleged conspirators turn out to actually be conspiring, but they think that the protagonist knows something they don't. So they start trying to murder him for something that he invented, and they think is also true. So everybody's kind of confused. The conspirators, the conspiracy theorists, they all believe in a lie, but because it becomes real to them, it becomes this kind of murder mystery uh uh, novel, so I, I thought that was quite ingenious on his part. Everyone's so confused that eventually everybody is locked in a, a parallel universe.
0: Rabbit Hole, Kiefer shatterland a new TV series. Did you watch it?
1: Um, no, I haven't yet. I've seen it on Prime. Is it ah uh,
0: yes? Is exactly what you just mentioned. So someone oh really who believes in conspiracy theories is. But at the same time, it's actually kind of part of a conspiracy. So, it, it, you know, the first episode is rather bizarre to follow. But if you're into it, then here you are. So,
1: all right, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. And if I do get through it, maybe you and I can do a review of the show in some later date. All right. That sounds good. Yes, I have one last question. Still has to do with conspiracy theories in Italy and JFK. So what? Left wing Italian newspaper was used by the Soviet KGB to plant disinformation about Clay Shaw, the man accused by Jim Garrison of murdering oh, president. That's Kennedy.
0: an easy answer. It's called L'Unita or the Unity.
1: Okay, oh. I have a different title here. I have Paese ah, Serra. Of
0: course, Paese Serra. Yes. Yeah, okay. You have two interesting publications. Paese Serra, which no longer exists. It was, uh, I, I think, it was the non-official newspaper of the left party. Um, the the unita was the, the the real communist one. But absolutely, Paese Sierra, yep. Yeah. okay, okay in okay. that way, yeah. So,
1: so apparently the Soviet Union was, as they often did, and sometimes the Russians also do today, um, like to kind of throw a wrench in American domestic politics and maybe other countries as well by by planting stories that would generate conspiracy thinking and other types of protests in in the other country i'm not saying americans don't do that uh but it was interesting in studying kennedy to see how much kennedy conspiracy theories had been influenced by the kgb here and there kind of throwing a wrench in the machine and making people write conspiracy books based on fake news in in essence so uh so that's my 10 questions for you i'm proud to say you got 90 percent Nine on ten. And the only question you didn't get was the one that I thought was the easiest was about the the murderers of Julius Caesar. But that's okay. Uh, We can forgive you for that. It's a long time ago, right? Who knows? Who knows who killed Caesar anyway? Uh, Just before we end, I have uh, have something here called the question jar. So I usually reserve these for our interviewees, not our co-hosts. But since this is kind of a hybrid, uh, are you willing to answer a question from the question
0: jar? I'm a little bit scared, but uh, go on.
1: No, don't worry. These are, these are not dangerous for the most part. Would you rather spend a week canoe camping with your in-laws or Black Friday shopping with Ann Coulter?
0: <laughs> Do you know who Ann Coulter is? Oh, yes. You know, the moment you start the sentence, Black Friday shopping, I was going to say, oh, yes, of course. Black Friday shopping, uh, I think I have to revise my answer because I'm not sure I would enjoy <laughs> Black Friday shopping with Ann Coulter, to be honest. Uh, it might be an interesting conversation, but uh, up to a point. So, no, I think uh, with my laws because now I'm going to tell you a secret, my laws don't speak any English. Okay. They are from Israel. They only speak Hebrew. I do speak some Hebrew, but uh, I it would be probably easier just to, you know, say like, Anilo Mevin, I don't understand, so sorry about that
1: okay, okay.
0: <laughs> would you go black Friday shopping with your in-laws uh actually, I think I could do that because yeah, I must admit something I love shopping, I'm Italian, and I don't mind going uh on a black Friday shopping spree to be honest. I even take my
1: and, and Israelis are used to danger oh, in public, absolutely right so they would they would be careful they would know not to uh get hit in the face by a flying television set.
0: Oh, yeah, probably to avoid a dispute about the last TV set left in a Walmart store.
1: (laughs) Which is, of course, a major problem in Israel, as we know. It's probably the biggest concern they have.
0: But I'll tell you again a story. I lived in Macomb, Illinois, small town, 20,000 people, the only Walmart in a radius of probably 50 miles. And so I went to a Black Friday you know event at Walmart and uh, it was a fascinating experience because I really saw people fighting over the last piece of a TV set or I remember there was like a couple they they were literally fighting over a laptop I mean the discount was pretty good but really uh but yes it ended up with a Walmart worker like try to explain that there might have been a chance to get it online anyway so you know
1: yeah, <laughs> So, uh, it's a bit beyond me. I don't, I don't have, we don't have that much of that Black Friday stuff happening here. I'm quite happy for that. Uh, so Roberto Matza, I'm very, very happy to, uh, have had you on our show and, uh, maybe, uh, we get to talk again soon.
0: As they say in Arabic, inshallah, God's willing, Michelle, thank you so much. And if I can just, uh, end up saying, if your listeners then enjoy this conversation, they can find me at, uh, Robbie ref, which is, uh, the name of all of my social. And indeed, they can follow me uh, in my podcast at Jerusalem (laughs) Unplugged.
1: And that is the end of bonus episode 7.3c of the Paranoid Planet podcast. It was brought to you by the chances that President Biden, or anyone else in the world, is likely to solve the Palestinian question anytime soon. Or find a way for Italians to speak without using their arms. Don't forget to visit our website at www.paranoidplanet.ca and to support our podcast by leaving us a review, a five-star rating, a monthly micropayment, a friendly email, and, maybe, a large bowl of linguine calabrese. On behalf of Joan Lijo and our guest co-host, Roberto Mazza, this is Michel Gagne reminding you that
0: Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball!
1: This was a Burden of Proof media production. We'll see you next time.
0: conspiracy, paradigm shift, and critical thinking.